Howdy. In this episode, I talked to Jerry White. Jerry has designed some incredibly innovative games like Atlantic Chase, Skies Above the Reich, Enemy Coast Ahead, and more. Right now, he has two GMT projects, Skies Above Britain, co-designed with Gina Willis, and Infernal Machine, co-designed with Ed Ostermeyer. We discuss the role of geography in games, the virtues of collaborative design, and the delicate nature of playing bad guys in historical games. So, um, which would be more annoying to pour steel for, do you think? A Frank Gehry building or a Santiago Calatrava <laughs> structure? Well, the Calatravas actually has to stand up. So, uh, that might be, you know, uh, it would definitely be, of course, it's the Frank Gehry building. I mean, come on. Yeah. Everything <laughs> looks like it's slightly melted or it's just like i saw this bug and i was inspired to make a a building <laughs> that looks have just ever, like it have you seen the uh, episode on the simpsons with frank gary no i haven't yeah i mean it's just yeah you get that explains everything that's all you need to know anytime any right. ask me about frank gary I just say look at the simpsons i'm gonna have to comb youtube and find some clips <laughs> For sure. Uh, normally, I don't try to uh, invoke anybody's day job, but I was thinking about how your games really invoke a playfulness with space a lot of times. And, uh, you know, particularly when I think about um, the kill boxes of Skies Above the Reich, uh, which kind of lays bare like this sinister game space where pilots are being fed through a veritable wood chipper <laughs> and asked to press your luck, you know scoring hits on incoming bombers. And then the trajectories in, of the task forces in um, Atlantic Chase's uh, geography have this kind of, you know, fourth dimension that you're trying to reconcile. I was going to ask, what gave you the idea to interpret operations in those ways? Yeah. Um, wow, Woodchipper, I love that. Uh, Mark and I, when we were designing it, I don't know why we never came up with that image, but that that's a perfect image. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> um, you were probably much well, kinder to yeah, your pilots my, than I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, my background is, uh, I guess game design scratches the design itch because my first career was as an architect. So, which of course is very, very spatial um, line of work, you know, um, and I've always, even when I was a kid getting into history, I was just fascinated by maps. So it's always been about maps, um, anything spatial. And it, it just, uh, so that's where I personally gravitate towards is the spatial. I, this is what frustrates me about um, card games sometimes. Although card games can be very spatial, like Fields of Fire and so on. Those really aren't cards. Those are tiles. You know, you're just reconfiguring a geography. But um um, and I wish they were tiles because the car, I mean, I get it that the cards, you shuffle them and everything, but they just, I can't keep cards straight. That just bothers me so much that they will just, you're putting the little, have you ever played Fields of Fire? You put the, I, I mean, tried. it's a great game if you can um, understand it. I don't know if I understand I, yeah. it, but. I, um, <laughs> I, I couldn't crack into it and it, it's weird. You know, I, I loved, um, Ben Hall had this great game, um, 
I want to say it was like on 14th century, like kind of siege operations and things like that. One by the sword. Is that his? Is that the one I'm thinking of? That I, I really liked yeah, it. Yeah, it is. And it got kind of a bad rap, but I don't know anything about that because I just show up like a, you know, like a doof, like two years after games come out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'll try this, you know. So I enjoyed it. Um, I don't really know what the bad rap was about or anything like that, um, but I really liked it. And then I'd heard a lot of positive things about Fields of Fire, but I also don't. I don't really do a lot of solitaire gaming, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Cold was the big game changer for that, but oh my god, I couldn't, I couldn't get into that rule book. It was too tough. Um, yeah, so I know I they're just, working on another I, version, but yeah, <laughs> I know. I just <laughs> if you ever do figure out how to play it, please lead me, show me the light, so I can figure it out. Because okay, I just uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I was never in the military. Some folks tell me that who really love it say, yeah, well, you know, there's some stuff that you just kind of have to know that there's certain perceived military procedures at a certain scale, you know, that usually don't get modeled, but are, but are getting modeled in that, or at least play an important role in it. And, you know, it, they're not being explained. It's sort of like you, you know, it's sort of like not explaining how to roll dice, I guess, you know, because you just intuitively, although that's probably a dumb analogy, but, you know, you don't have to bother to tell the player to pick up the die with your hand and not your foot and don't put it in your mouth and then, you know, roll it and then use the top most, the, the number that's pointing to the, or that's parallel to the ceiling. You don't have to do any of that because you just expect the player to know. And I think there's some military stuff that Ben was expecting people to know and wasn't even aware that, you know, idiots like us would know or no, idiots I, like me. I, 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 think call you a, a, I think that's a good analogy actually, because I, I think what sometimes happens is we think of, you know, even in design terms, a lot of this comes down to a certain shorthand. Like, I think you all know what a deck builder is or action selection, but we don't really go into the bones of explaining it the way that maybe Dominion or, um, you know, like one of the early action selection games, like where Kalis or some game like has to explain what worker mm-hmm. placement is, you know, from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, like 15, 20 years in, and you're just like, yeah, all right. You know, it's like those. And now I got my rule book under six pages. Let's go type of thing. But at a certain point, when you're trying to open up the hobby to new people, they're just kind of on the outside because there's all this mm-hmm. shorthand and they're not really privy to it. And it can kind of feel a little bit exclusive to to mm-hmm. certain kind of game audiences when yeah. describe rule books in that way and i mean i feel it every day you know i put together like uh oncology curriculum and you know some some doctor or nurse will be like do you even know what's going on right now <laughs> like gesturing at a powerpoint presentation and it's like it's like a dog watching tennis i don't know the game but i know which i know where the ball is you know what i mean i can follow the ball <laughs> i'm gonna chase that ball <laughs> right so i gotta get after it wow Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the spatial thing. I think that that's what you, you, before we started, you mentioned tangents and we already had our first tangent. Wow. Well, that's good. Sorry about that. Um, so the spatial, yeah, I'm all about the spatial. Spatial is just so, I don't know. I, I find that the most interesting part of games actually is, um, and that's how I got into war games and the tactical from the tactical to the strategic making decisions while looking at a map. 
um, I think is the most fascinating and absorbing thing, at least for me. I was just going to say, do your designs begin with then kind of solving how to represent that battlefield in your model? Or do you start with how to impose the command and control constraints? Uh, yeah, I, um, I'm not that you know self-reflexive to um, answer that very well because I don't really – I don't really keep track because you know how you're a designer. You know how it is when you really get into it and you get excited about it. You're not bothering. You're not thinking about it in that way. You're just kind of chasing the ball. <laughs> you know, the ball has, mm. has left, has bounced off the tennis court. Now you're, you're at, you're on it. Um, I don't know. Are you a dog owner? I used to be a dog owner and, and dogs and tennis balls. That is just such an image. Let me tell you. Um, but I am not, I don't have pets. I'm allergic to a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's tragic. But yeah. Yeah. My friend Mark Ostad is very allergic. And I have three cats. And whenever he comes over, I have to just detox everything. And I we have a courtyard out here where this is where we thank goodness for our weather that most of the time we can just be out there because, but he loves animals, though. You know, he's such an idiot. He'll be yeah. petting one of my cats and getting his hand completely covered in fur. And I'm going, you are an idiot. What did you just do? But anyway, he's, you know, they're cute. He's, he's a sucker for them. But, um, I'm, but I'm always flabbergasted when I encounter a gamer who just goes, oh, yeah, I really, I really like cards. I don't like maps. And I'm just going, you're like from Alpha Centauri. I don't get you at all. Especially with historical <laughs> situation. I don't know. Are, how do you feel in terms of maps and so on? I think they're very, they're very distinct moods for gaming. When I'm buying things, I like maps. Like I'm kind of buying things for maps. You know, um, uh, who, uh, I'm trying to think of the designer. I think John Paniska did uh, the Maori mm-hmm. Wars game. Oh, for amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Nils Johansson, that map, I would just hang it on the wall and yes. like look at it because that's yeah. Yeah. fine. You're getting your money's worth just looking at this map on the wall. No offense to John. I'm sure he would prefer people play his games and look at them <laughs> on the wall. Um, I'm just letting you know. Maybe that's part of the draw, right, too? It's like, I look, look, honey, I decorated the dining room table. Well, I'm that just over well, yeah. For a week. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely am drawn more to maps when I'm getting a game, and I think about that a lot. But I think cards occupy, it, it's more of a, your brain or imagination is filling in the mm. space. And it gives you these layers of abstraction where you can address a lot of facets mm-hmm. of a particular conflict mm-hmm. or story that uh, tying everything to a physical geography mm-hmm. doesn't allow you to do because cards are so abstract. Yeah. Um, so you I think that's the flexibility. It's definitely from a design standpoint. It's just, I think one of those things is a little bit more attractive to designers. And one of those things is a little more attractive to players. I think the space is more attractive to players. Probably. That's a great way. I don't know. I've met so many players who really are into the card play. You know, they really, and I have to admit that I'm a sucker for that as well. There is something very enjoyable about playing the right card or getting those card combinations or whatever. Um, you know, I, I like to play um, Wild Blue Yonder, which I don't know if you ever played that. Um, you know, you have your little yeah. airplanes and uh, your basically powers represented by a fistful of cards. The more cards you have is a representation of power. You dive, you get 
you get a card, you climb, you have to get rid of a card. There's something very elegant and simple about that, but it's very satisfying when you, you know, you've been playing for six rounds and you finally have the right card combination and you can just nail that guy, you know, except he winds up getting away. Right. Very frustrating, but, um, I, um, I, I think that that's a, a great way to, to like when you're doing something with kind of, you know, air combat, just a map is not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like you yes. just need a really wide open space. Yeah. And so that's a place where it just feels more three-dimensional. And like when you're dealing with that, you know, even when you're looking at how um, certain games will kind of have your altitude mapped mm-hmm. out rather than, mm-hmm. you know, looking at it at a 2d plane in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> it's bizarre. Then when you turn around and then you're playing something like X wing and you're like, wow, space feels really flat all of a sudden. You know what I mean? It feels a little, little goofy, but <laughs> I don't know. They probably bought it for the minis. Anyway. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I try to avoid minis because that is a, that's a rabbit hole. I don't, I don't need to go down. I already have enough rabbit holes. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah. I, I just, I can't look my wife in the eye and hold while holding a box of minis saying, really, it's, it's a good buy. I couldn't, it was on sale. That just, yeah. Not with all the games I buy and everything. So yeah. Understood. Yeah. With um, but to go back to space and actually air games, this is one of the things that Mark and I, when we were working on um, skies above the Reich, we were, you know, we kept returning to it, which is that flat, static quality that when you take it, a, the dynamism of, you know, a kinetic environment like, you know, the skies above Germany in World War II, very three-dimensional space, and you are flattening it into a representation on a game board, you know, half the time we were thinking, okay, this is just a bad idea. Because we are not capturing. So seriously, you know, you but you probably know what it's like as a designer. Half the time, you've got that little skeptic in the back of your head saying, "That's a dumb idea." You know, that's not going to work. You know, you always have that kind of sure. voice. Um, only when you work with a design partner, you know, that voice is out loud, looking at you from across the table, going, "That is a dumb idea." One of the pleasures of working with another person, but. But we Absolutely. thought we could get away with it in Skies Above the Reich because of the relatively static quality, um, really by doctrine, of the heavy bomber formations. And uh, that really interested us, the, the idea that the American scheme for the combat box was fairly successful. Um, that and the engineering that went into the aircraft themselves and the training of the various gunnery zones um, – which they got from the British. Um, it really, it, it, we just love the idea of thinking about that as a static space, as a kind of terrain. So, and now you've got, you know, once you have that, now you've got the fun part, which is of course, attacking things, you know, um, rather than being the, def- I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but some players like to be the defender in games. I know I always like being the, the, the more aggressive uh, more th- you've got more decisions to make when you are, you know, uh-huh. and uh, Mark used to play. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but well, you probably have B 17 queen of the skies, the old Avalon Hill classic. I think I did target. For okay. The yeah. That's the updated that's version. Yeah. So I never played it as a, in my reckless youth, but Mark did. 
And he really loved it. He even taught it to his kids, which I thought was crazy. Um, but I, you know, when we started working on Skies Above the Reich and he realized I had never played B-17 Queens of the Skies, he, you know, he wrote me into playing it once. I think he invited me over to his place and he already had it set up and he said, you're going to play this. So he forced me to play that stupid game. Sorry, I know some people really love it, but I just found it to be profoundly boring, unfortunately, because there just wasn't anything to do. It was kind of cool that you got to see the detail and, you know, the story does unfold. So I get that. Um, But, you know, I just thought, you know, it's so obvious to me that the game is in reverse. This would be a fun, B-17 would be a fun game if you were, you know, controlling the 190s and the 109s. Now we have a game, but just sitting there and watching them attack you. I mean, what the heck? You'd think it would be more popular in a kind of contemporary context. I feel like you could get players on board with trying to repel the mass bombing of cities, for example, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And like targets, like just like, Oh, this, this is great. Whereas like, uh, what are we doing? Uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to go bomb, you know, cities full of civilians, but it's just like, I don't, I don't think they want to, you know I mean, like, I don't think the players really want to do that. I feel like you, you're getting like more decision space when you're repelling them, but also it's probably a little bit more of a player role that, you know, folks would really yeah. get behind. Yeah, like, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's also something that Mark and I talked about because, um, you know, m- my, uh, my father missed the wars. He, um, he was in the army. He got drafted in between Korea and Vietnam. Uh, Mark has, he comes from a, um, a long, this is Mark Ostad. He comes from a long line of uh, military folks. He, you know, he could tell you, X, Y, and Z relative uncle, grandparent that was in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. I mean, just the whole works. So he was at first a little bit hesitant about doing a solitaire game from the German point of view, attacking American bombers. And I know that since the game has been published, there have been comments in different places from prospective gamers saying, I just can't do this. I just can't attack American planes because, you know, it feels like, feels unpatriotic, I guess. I don't know. And also because, you know, those were the Nazis. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be defending the Holocaust and totally get that. Yeah. Nobody, you know, so we figured that would be a problem. But, um, and I think also if we had tried this, not that we could have, but let's say somebody, you know, B-17 Queen of the Skies came out, I think, in the early 80s. I think it was a very different um, historical moment for gaming. I don't think Skies Above the Right could have come out as an American game um, at that time. I don't think it would have been gone over very well. And I think uh, maybe enough time has transpired that we can appreciate the um, complexity that was World War II rather than just the simplicity of um, good guy versus bad guy. Because, you know, as we read more into the situation, a lot of those German pilots getting climbing into those cockpits were so young that they didn't know anything except um, Hitler's world. I mean, they just, it's, you know, and what they also were responding to was the bombing of cities and their families and so on. So, you, for right. us, we thought that, yeah, part of us has a problem with putting the player into, 
you know, the cockpit of a Nazi. And some of those pilots were, you know, horrible Nazis. There's no way to get around that. But a lot of them were just doing what soldiers have always had to do, which is, you know, your choices are extremely limited. You either do what the government is telling you to do or they line you up and shoot you. Um, you know, and you're defending, you're defending the cities, the towns, the, the children from being bombed as well. So, it, you know, it's very complex. War always is. Um, and the problem is that the closer you are to the war, the more simple things get, you know, and uh, it's very hard. Because they have to. Yeah, right. exactly. You know, so um, we th- we were. That's one of the things that we I think were charmed by was that um, we were distant enough from World War II that we could be allowed this um, contrary point of view. You know, this more complex point of view. I think that also interested us a bit. Um, but obviously, there's some players that just can't go there, which I totally understand. But, um, you know, the good news is there's there's so many games out there. If you don't want to be a – if you don't want to command a German Stoffel, uh, you don't have to. There's a lot of options. Right. No, I think that's um, – it's interesting. You were kind of mentioning like too, like for the era now, it's, it's more likely than now you'd have games that would deal with some of these more complex topics or put them from a player point of view that you wouldn't have been able to see like in the 1970s, 1980s. It's interesting because there's like a weird relationship with um, World War II games because some of them it would be like prominently featured on the cover is like the German, you know what I mean? Like, like the, the German like the German soldier. And you're just like, uh, I, I seem to remember someone else winning this war. It's like kind of odd that the marketing looks like this, you know, everything. And so I always found that kind of odd that you'd see, see games that would have like a, this type of you know graphic presentation mm-hmm. sometimes or like artwork, despite the fact that the operations are handled in a certain way. But I mean, like now, if if I were going to play a game that takes place in say the Pacific Theater during World War II, and I'm playing as the Americans, I would hope there's not a mechanic in it where there's like Japanese internment that I'm responsible mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for conducting or something like that. I think there's a lot of elements from operational games in years past that were abstracted because it's really about them trying to drill down in the operations and those are the choices you know those command constraints that you're trying to impose on players and that's the thing that i think players want to engage with and you're always as a designer probably really disturbed when folks want you know i mean like they would they want to do all of it they want to do like you know political aspects of it and things like and just like yeah i'm not designing that game i don't i don't want to do that for you it's like, oh last day is the reich you should do it. we're in a bunker somewhere it's like yeah i'm not making that game for you and i have no interest in you know creating that and i don't think you're gonna find a lot of takers who are but yeah 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 you know it's a you raise yeah. an interesting and you know an an interesting edge condition that happens where it's really the the I think it's the edge between representation and simulation that on the one hand, uh, there is great satisfaction in playing um, a very immersive simulation. But mm-hmm. um, you're right. You don't want to be in charge of uh, a concentration camp. You know, <laughs> who wants to, you know, that, you know, no, I don't want to do that. Um, 
but yet there is a responsibility of representation to make sure that, um, I mean, game historical games are historical documents in, to a certain extent. They're not artifacts from the period, but they are texts that, you know, a history book, whether, um, whether it's in a classroom or, you know, on, I don't know, in some academic series is a representation of the past. Games also are representations of the past. And although the markets are very different, so many games, especially the more intricate ones, are such immersive and detailed simulations that they enter, I think, the same realm to a certain degree. Um, I mean, I would never substitute, say, um, a, a game for a book in a classroom. Um, although I have, I do, I do work in a classroom, so I do use games, but not, you know, very detailed games, but gaming is an increasing part of, um, academia, um, in terms of pedagogy. But I think if, you know, you are, if you have a, say a strategic game on the Pacific, um, and if there, I would say that there should be some kind of representation in the game of internment. But that isn't the same as saying that you're going to put the player into a position where they have to make decisions about who to intern or when to intern or whether to do it or not. But I would hope that there would never be a game that would somehow give the wrong impression. Because if by omitting certain sure. historical facts, um, I think you risk misrepresenting the past. And it can get, it can get a little hairy. I mean, I would never want to be, I would, I would not want, let me put it this way. I wouldn't want to apologize for the Nazis by simply removing the Nazis by saying that Germany in world war two, Oh, that had nothing to do with Nazis. It was just soldiers. It was, you know, I'm thinking, you know, at some point there has to be, it doesn't have to be a feature of the game necessarily. It doesn't have to be mechanic. But there's got to be something in there that when the player is exploring that historical topic, assuming the game is of a certain complexity level, and I suppose there is a threshold there where if it's simple enough, I mean, I suppose in Memoir 44, you don't really need to get into, you know, Nazis, not Nazis. But I think in a lot of games, you kind of do. You know, otherwise you're, you know, because if you're going to have a whole lot of detail in that game and you are asserting historical accuracy, but then to avoid certain very obvious things, I think would be problematic. Yeah, it's pretty challenging, you know, working on, I've got a game on the P500 that I did with Chris Bennett and Joe Schmidt about the French resistance. And <laughs> trying to represent that as a two-player game is extremely challenging because you're casting player yeah. in a role for the occupation and it's not just i mean it's not just germans like we've got collaborating mm -hmm. french and that's like a big part of that component and then with the resistance it's like some of it's french and some of it's not very french that's kind of it's resistance in france more than french resistance right. if you will so there's just like you're trying to like rope in all these things but i do feel like you get a little bit more license with a card-driven game because there's ways to address things within the scope of a conflict mm -hmm. and touch on them without having it be a, a thematic mechan like mechanism that's going to really mm -hmm. be 
you're going to be doing it and it's going to be distasteful. And occasionally, you know, we're kind of, uh, Joe, Joe and I particularly like, we're just kind of like shit stirs. So we like <laughs> every once in a while, it's like, uh, well, we're just going to make the player feel really unsettled and we're going to make them do this one thing that they aren't going to want to do, but make them have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, we're just going to see it. Cause I don't want to whitewash this. Exactly. Like, this is just going to exactly. be an unpleasant thing. And so that's the two player experience, but then we had to have a solitaire where you basically just have players playing mm-hmm. resistance against an automated mm-hmm. opponent. And I think that that's pretty key for that. I, I think you want to have that balance for the players who aren't comfortable. But you're right. There's just a whole universe of gaming where folks don't mm-hmm. have to engage with particular topics or particular points of view yeah. at all. And they should yeah. feel fine with that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, because, you know, I have – sorry about the cat. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I have – one of the things that I that, – that brought me into gaming from at a very young age was learning. Because I would, games could teach me things, especially when it came to go back to maps, especially when it came to um, geography and so on. There's so much that I can learn. I mean, I was a, I was a real American Civil War geek for in my reckless use. So, so many of my games were, you know, had, had involved that conflict, and I learned so much about American geography through it. And then. You know, same thing with World War II, fascination with World War II. My geography was largely, I think the foundation of my Europe geography has to do with World War II. That's like my zero line. Everything, you know, before and after always gets related back to that baseline simply because I played so many of those silly games. So I know that geography so well. Um, but there is learning that happens in these games. And there is, I think a responsibility that the game designers have, at least in a historical game to um, be very careful and uh, accurate with your representation. That doesn't mean that you're, you know, and this is where I guess we could divide between or separate representation from simulation. You don't have to simulate everything, you know, and you can take liberties with simulation for the purpose of the game because the game has to have a beginning and an end. There has to be artificial conditions to win or lose. And in war, nobody really wins. Nobody really loses. Everybody kind of loses in a war. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that responsibility, I think, is um, something that, um, I don't know, I feel quite, is quite heavy as I get into, you know, a design project. Um, Because I don't want to, you want to do justice to the period, but uh, you also want to Make sure that anybody who sits down with you, and I've known that some some players will tell me that they um, play their games, they'll play my games with their kids sometimes, and because to teach them. And I'm going, okay, all righty, you know, that's flattering, but it's also a little, you know, that just adds a little bit more weight there. You know, I got to make sure that, yeah, you know, that I am not making any egregious historical errors. You know, which is tricky in a game right. because, you know, by their nature, you don't want the game to simply reenact what happened. You want to have those alternative outcomes. I mean, I suppose in your game, sometimes the resistance is going to lose horribly, right? There's going to be a historical outcomes yep. are possible, um, you know, within limits, of course. Um, but you want to make sure that n- the game can't generate um, lies, I guess, to put it very, you know, crudely. Right. There's definitely like a, 
you're creating a, a sandbox where you're going to have um, an environment where you can show off the relationship between various things within the scope of a conflict, right? Like, right. like oh, this was this was the Shah of Iran's relationship with the military and how they were his single pillar of support and why that was not enough. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like it's going to unfold differently in each game, but it's just important that like when I'm designing, you know, that sandbox, it just needs to always not mm-hmm. be enough. And then I right. hit it, right? Like those are the points. Like you just need to like make sure that generally speaking, you know, if you're playing like a, a card driven game, the events are not going to come out in mm-hmm. chronological order. I could stack them in that order and that would be, pretty lame but you know like it's possible yeah. i could do that and you could have that be the the weird like you want to teach history you know what i mean <laughs> to your friends like just stack the cards in this order but i i've never put the brain space toward doing that because i'm incredibly lazy um so <laughs> you know uh it, it's a little different though like i think with um with operational games there's always an understanding of we have a starting space where these mm-hmm. units are maybe we have a flexible setup mm-hmm. that you know generals what have you could have like basically reallocated their troops in this way but a lot of the constraints with forming a beachhead you know whatever the particular engagement requires the constraints are going to be largely the mm-hmm. same every time regardless of whatever flexibility right. they give you and the more hell-bent you are on making it a very rigid simulation all you've done is taken all the sand out of the sandbox so now we just have a box <laughs> with everything in place and the only sand is what i brought <laughs> that's a great uh, yeah that's a great way to put it yeah so let me ask you a question since you have your you're designing as part of a team um how well are you getting along with your team Oh, I'm getting along with them great. And everything's been meshing. You know, I I was thinking about how, um, you know, I was going to touch on this as a question for you too, but like um, I have not had a lot of experience working with a developer Mm -hmm. on games. And when I have worked with a developer, it wasn't a developer that like was assigned by a publisher. Like I basically, my very first design, I was like, I just need a developer. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I need need someone to develop this. And my friend's like, I'll develop your game. Not really fully understanding, I mean, either of us, what Mm -hmm. that was going to entail. But it did help because he knew that his task was to point out problems with Mm -hmm. the design. And my design task was to (laughs) resolve them to the best of my ability. That is a lot of it, Mm -hmm. you know. But with co-designers, I feel like you've got these sounding boards of folks who you have to justify all your decisions to. And that is pretty, it, it's not exactly the same as development. I'm not going to throw Jason Carr under the bus <laughs> and say like, I don't, I don't need your insight, man. I, I got, I got these folks backing me up because I think the things that, um, that a developer like Jason would be able to point out and give it's the wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. from having that being that, um, problem pointer mm-hmm. in a lot of these mm-hmm. other projects. And when you, present a design that's flawed to other designers, they are, they're not just pointing out the problem. They're typically trying to create the Mm -hmm. solution for you. And then oftentimes when I get notes from designers, I appreciate them a great deal, but I have to like walk it back to what the Mm -hmm. problem was. So it'd be like, if like Jerry, if, if I say something like, you know, your turns would be shorter if you did this, this, and this, 
all I'm thinking in my head is like not about your solution, but just like the but turns are too long. Like I gotta, I gotta shorten the turns. I mean, and I'll, I might even end up using your suggestion like three months later, but I'll never attribute it to you. And I'll never even remember that you said it. I'll only remember that you thought the turns were too long. (laughs) Cause that's, it's just the criticism you you can internalize. I don't need to write that down. I'll remember that. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I know with, um, you know, working, I like working with other people because I think the product ultimately is, is superior and it's because of what you're saying. You have to prove everything. You constant, it can be exhausting. You know, you constantly have to look that other person in the eye and say, I think we should do this. And, you know, you might just get that shake of the head and now you've got to explain why, you know, you can't just, you know, whereas if you just have somebody who's a play tester or whatever, you know, you can't just say, trust me, I think this is going to work. You know, you got to actually, you got to bring it right then and there. And that can be very exhausting, you know, so... But thank goodness, quite often when you do that, that other person just shakes their head and goes, you know, I'm going to walk you down from this ledge. It may take all day, but we're, well, I'm going to get you off that ledge. You know, mm-hmm. and afterwards you thank, you, you thank your lucky stars that you are working with that other person because they did save you from leaping off that ledge. But I will say that when I work solo, though, um, I think I can be more creative because you can, you can chase the dumb idea all the way through the labyrinth to the brick yeah. wall, you know, and just smack up against it. And maybe that took months, you know, thinking, oh, this is a great idea. I don't know. Maybe you're, it's being the dog chasing that tennis ball as it bounces down the stairs and into the labyrinth. Um, and that can be very satisfying, that chase, you know, that, and you get a lot of ideas on the, along the way, even though that you know, the, I, the main idea you thought that you were organizing the whole game around actually doesn't work. And it took you so long to figure that out, but at least it wasn't somebody (laughs) stopping you at the very beginning of that chase. And you, you know, because if you don't at least have that, I don't know, so many bad ideas are actually very, they create fertile ground for other ideas quite often. I find, you know, because I think with, you know, speaking of chase Atlantic chase, that took so long. And when I first started showing it to people like 15 years ago, I mean, it was a very, it was in a very different state and people were just shaking their heads going, I don't know what you're talking about. This makes no sense. This isn't going to work. And I don't like it. And that's of course, always, you know, you go over to their house or you bring them over and you've got everything set up and you're playing it. And they just go, I don't like this. And you're just going, I want, all I can think of now are homicidal thoughts. I need to leave, you know, but they were right. You know, I mean, it was, it was bad. It was dumb, but uh, you know, at least I could just go home and it could gestate and I could work on it. And, you know, it's, we're doing this for fun. You know, I don't know any designers. Maybe there are some designers of these things that actually make a living at it, but it's just supposed to be fun and I find it fun and I can chase those ideas. But when you have another person you're working with, you, it gets a little more professional. You get, you know, there's more camaraderie and you kind of, you know, and you're gradually getting tired of each other in a way because you're turning, you know, you're being negative to each other sometimes. So it's hard to hold it together, you know, without any 
you know, hierarchical structure holding it together. You're just kind of teaming up to create something. Right. I, it's, it's odd too, because you don't, I feel like in those projects, if I had an idea that got cut from a co-design, I'll never use it in another project. Cause later on when I'm reflecting on it, I won't really know yeah. whose idea it was. It'll just be like something we're riffing yeah. on. And when you're working on your own, you'll cut a lot of stuff and it all goes somewhere on the shelf. Like, yeah, but later on I might mm-hmm. be working on, you know, some weird game about JCPOA and then we'll be like, blow it off and, <laughs> and take it off the shelf and then just plug and play. Like, right. now we got this opportunity to use this thing. And it's also, you know, to, to your point about working on Atlantic Chase over a really long period of time, some projects need a lot of time mm-hmm. away to think about them and then come back. And when the co-design, the riffing really advances mm-hmm. things, like it progresses them faster. But those projects typically, co- people I'd co-design with, they don't want to like fart around and wait two right. years for me to like solve some big design problem. And when you're working on a design on your own, um, there's some of these where you'll do a lot of work that doesn't pan out, like the bad idea that you just follow for a really mm-hmm. long time and you keep building off of it and building off of it. But it's nice. Cause I imagine, you know, 15 years later, Atlantic Ch- chase is like released. It's sort of like a river that goes underground for a bit <laughs> and then comes up. No one sees everything that you did to get there. It's sort of like that greatest hits album. Like, wow, aren't I like a genius? <laughs> like it's just, this really came out of nowhere. I, I really stuck the landing. I really <laughs> nailed this. I just had this idea the other day and boom. <laughs> oh yeah. I just waved my, it just fell like out more. of the cuff of my shirt. Yeah, it was so. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, mm-hmm. um, it is a very different experience working with somebody else versus working on your own. And um, I, they're both good. They're both good. And I, I, I don't know, in some ways I enjoy, I think, working with other people more just because it's not as lonely also. And also you learn, you know, mm-hmm. you, you learn as a designer from other people, you know, stuff you just never would have thought of. Um, you know, it can come out of left field. Maybe I would have thought about it, you know, 10 years from now, you know, but we got it in a month. So because of this other person, you know, and plus I love the idea about when you were saying, and I feel this exactly when you're working with somebody else, it's so hard to know where an idea really comes from. Because once you start the back and forth, you know, there is no pure idea that comes from a single person anymore it's just, right. you have, there's just no way to assign authorship to a particular idea or mechanism. At least I feel. No, I, I think it's pretty difficult. I, I feel like I would remember a suggestion I made on someone else's game, but I won't remember a suggestion I made on a game I co-designed with like two people. <laughs> For whatever reason, is just be like, yeah, we were in the room and we we talked about it, and who knows? Exactly. Who the hell knows? You know, at this point, and, and so that's that's kind of the fun part of that is that it does feel like it was cloud, like mm-hmm. a cloud derived, mm-hmm. no decision. But um, you know, speaking of uh, co designer relationships and some of the some of the insight you get into your own designs or. Um, collaborations that kind of give birth to like this whole new direction for a game. Uh, I found it really fascinating your co-design with Gina Willis, like for the, um, 
is it Skies Over yeah, Britain? Skies Above Britain. Yeah, the, we couldn't use Skies the, Over because yeah. that is the title of another. I think there's already a Skies Over the Reich or something like that. Some other game like that. So we just adopted Skies Above. Although I kind of like Skies Over. You should trademark <laughs> that. Like you can't call them Skies. We call skies them Skies are ours. You can call them clouds. You'll, you'll, you can point up. We'll allow you to point up, but that's it. Otherwise, you owe me money. It's like the, the happy birthday song, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, you can, you can say happy birthday, but if you sing it in a way that seems re- reminiscent of the work of Patty and Mildred Hill, I think you owe me a sum of money. <laughs> I'll get right on that. Yes, I'm sure that'll go perfectly right. well. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, Gina, it's interesting. I've had the pleasure of working with uh, several different people on different projects that have been published. And it's so different every time because the personalities just make the, a huge difference. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, working with Gina has been great. Um, she, uh, I mean, do you want me to explain how we got together to work on this or? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yes. I know a little bit about it, but for listeners, okay. that'd be well, great. it was, you know, it was never intended because by the time Mark and I were done with skies above the Reich, we had skies above the Reich was huge. It was really skies and storm together. I don't know if you're familiar with both of those, but it was just too enormous. And I won't get into the long twisted history of how skies above the Reich came about, but we just envisioned, um, you know, there are B-17s and B-24s, there's 109s and 190s, but we had so much stuff, it was impossible. We just couldn't present that to a publisher. So we cut it in half and we just did B-17s and 109s. And we said, if the publisher is dumb enough to take this game and publish it and maybe we could follow <laughs> it, we could convince them to follow it up with this one, which is really the second half. But we want, we didn't want to do an expansion because I always hate it when... And I understand that from a publishing point of view, how it all works and everything, but you do a base game and then you do the expansions. You make a good amount of money, I imagine, on the expansions. But as a player, you have to get that base game. You know, So we wanted a standalone. So both of them would be standalone. And uh, the way GMT works, you know, stuff goes out of print and it can stay out of print for years before they get their act together to, you know, get it back in print. So we thought, okay, we better make both halves of Skies and Storm Above the Reich self-contained because at any given moment, you know, you can't expect the other one to be in print. Um, But by the time we were done with that, and maybe you felt this with your own games, we were so done. I mean, sometimes when you're done with a game, you are just, you don't even want to look at it. And the real horrifying bit is that by the time it publishes, now people are opening up the box and they're going typey, 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 these questions on, you know, BGG and Consum and whatnot. And now it just pulls you back into this game that you, I swear, publishing is kind of like, from my point of view, it's kind of like an exorcism. You just, at the end of it, you just want it out of the house. It's like, I don't want to see Absolutely. it on my shelf. I don't want to see it anywhere. I'm done. Um, so that's how I felt about Skies of the Reich. Mark certainly did too. So then after Skies of the Reich gets published though, on BGG, there's this person who's going tappy, 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 not questions, but, you know, giving some praise to the game, which is great, you know, woohoo. Um, but saying, you know, wouldn't it yeah. be swell if this system, which I really like, was adapted to Battle of Britain? And Mark and I are just looking at each other because, you know, that, I mean, Skies of the Reich, it took us about 10 years to do that game. 
Um, and very soon when we started working on it, we thought when we were developing that system, when we thought we had a system for the terrain and all, we thought, you know, could this work for Battle of Britain? Because Mark is a real Battle of Britain enthusiast. And we talked about it, you know, pretty seriously and uh, experimented with some things. And we came to the conclusion that no, it would not. Because you can't just go from heavy bombers to medium bombers. And you can't just go from, say, 1943-44 and then back to 1940 because there's just technologically and in terms of machines, certain things had changed. Um, the fighters just weren't as robust in terms of their armament like they were in 43 and 44. And the bombers were just more maneuverable and those um, and their formations were not as static. They broke apart too easily. So we concluded, no, this is not the right system for the Battle of Britain. And anybody who tries to force the system to do the Battle of Britain is probably daft. So in walks Gina Willis saying, no, I don't think so. And I gave a polite response, at least what I thought was polite, trying to explain why it wouldn't work. So Gina Willis is the type who basically says, no, I think you're wrong. And I think I'm going to go ahead and do a uh, vassal module that is a kind of a variant for Battle of Britain. And she did it and fast. And she, it was very clear by looking at that module that she really understood, Scott, you know, she understood the mechanisms pretty well. I would say she put it together and made it work. And we're going, okay, fine. You know, you could play that, sure. But then she gets so much energy that she decides to actually build a prototype, a physical prototype. And then she takes it to GMT at one of the Hampford events and shows it to Gene Billingsley and Mark Simonich. And they go, this is great. And now Mark and I are going, all right. Okay. So Mark says, I don't want to have anything to do with it because, you know, we had already passed on this and, you know, but, you know, Gene is, is basically asking us, so we don't want to publish this without your blessing. Um, so they send it to us and, you know, so Mark and I, we look at it and, you know, it comes through the mail and we're open in the box and she did a, a very sweet job of this. Let me tell you. And um, she was so faithful to skies above the Reich system. Um, and therein was kind of the problem because we thought she is, she, yes, she has made a playable game of this. It is Skies of the Reich. In fact, if you know how to play Skies of the Reich, you could just play that game, no problem. But the problem was, it was all about fighters and bombers. The bombers were still, um, and I think in our BGG back and forth, um, I had mentioned tiles because that's one of the things that Mark and I had come up with is instead of a board for the bomber formation, you would put, say, a bomber element of three bombers on a tile and you put the tiles together in mosaic and then the tiles can literally come apart to represent the, you know, the dissolving of the coherence of the bomber yeah. formation because they were medium bombers come apart a lot faster. Um you know, and she was, she took that idea and incorporated it, you know. Um, so she was clearly somebody who knows how to take advice, you know. She takes a new idea and incorporates it very seamlessly. But the problem, the main problem was that this was all about the fighter against the bomber. And in the Battle of Britain, as far as I'm concerned, that's the, that's not the most interesting part. It's really the fighter against the fighter. So to yes. make a long story short, or at least shorter, um, after looking at the box and looking at how much work she had done and the fact that she did have the tiles and it was kind of cool looking at those tiles, I was starting to get interested in it again, you know? So I tip my hat to Gina Willis that after, 
you know, having exercised Kaiser Brotherreich finally out of my house, um, she managed to bring it back in. So we did some back and forth by email. And I said, you know, I think I've got some problems with this, but I think there's some merit. And what do you think about shifting the complex, take some of the detail that's in the encounter between fighter and bomber and shifting that to fighter on fighter? Um, and abstracting the fighter on bomber more. And she was, yeah, it's a good idea. It's great. And then the back and forth just gradually turned into, well, I guess we're designing this together. So I took her, you know, prototype and took it apart and reassembled it. And then I sent my own back to her and we just kept going back and forth. And that's how that worked. And it was, we never got together. We've never been in the same room together. Um, It was all by email. But, you know, she, yeah, it's just, but it, it, you know, we work together really. She's great to work with. I mean, she was, you know, she comes up with great ideas. She's very accommodating. You can say no to her without there being blowback. You know, that's one of the, Mark and I are friends. One of the problems working with your friend is that you have, you've got that whole bit where you have to be very careful about how you say that's a dumb idea, (laughs) you know? Um, you don't have to, you don't have to be so polite, but at the same time, you know, that there's going to be, you know, there's history, you know, personal history there. And you know, that if you're going to keep the friendship, you're going to have to, some things have to be sugar coated in a certain way. And some things you have to allow that you don't, when you're in a more professional, uh, environment, you, you can get away from, but yeah, no, that it, um, yeah, I, I got, Dragged into that project, kicking and screaming, um, thanks to Gina Willis. Yeah, that's amazing. I I think it's pretty interesting too because I know she has a game with Legion right now that's on their yeah glorious chance. kind of pre order yeah. system glorious chance and and that's uh, I think like mm-hmm. Great Lakes mm-hmm. battles like uh, during the War of yes. eighteen twelve, which is fascinating. Um, but you can kind of see the playfulness with space even in in her game like that just seems like a good mm-hmm. match between the two of you just based on what i've read of glorious chance and then kind of knowing uh, a lot of your yeah. names and and how you adapt spaces in the same way yeah no. and thankfully she doesn't take no for an answer <laughs> no, too easily no. so well, she's got <laughs> you know to be a designer you have to have that confidence you know in your idea because you can't just show an idea to somebody and they go oh, i didn't really like it you know, and then just shrivel up like yeah. some poor flower. You know, you have to go, okay, yeah, they, they're making a good point here. And, uh, but, you know, you know, you have to have that confidence that there's something in your idea that is valid and is going to work, you know, and that's Gina, you know, she definitely knew that this was going to work. Uh, I think she kind of could see the game in a way, maybe not in its completed state, But then once I entered the picture, um, you know, we did this kind of designer dance that was, you know, pretty cool, you know, and what we, I, the result is I never would have designed this game on my own because Mark and I did talk about this and I did think about, and there's, we never would have come up with this. She certainly by the looks of the prototype she sent to, you know, GMT, totally different, you know, so this is neither my game nor her game. This is definitely, you know, the team game, but that's how it, I think, you know, 
that is what you get when you work together with a co-designer. You get this hybrid that you could never do on your own. No, I, I think it's it's great. And I also think that that's probably what's required to revisit an older design or one that you're kind of exhausted with, uh, <laughs> with working with any further. You know, when you start, I don't know, when I, when I started designing, it was a lot of small games that could be finished in a short period of time because mm-hmm. I didn't want to have a big idea that wouldn't get finished. Mm-hmm. Like for me, everything's got to get done. <laughs> And even when it's really crappy, it's like, we got to do it all the way to the end. And I'm starting to get a little better about it. But generally speaking, they, they need to be finished. So you have like your little your little pilot project that's like the, the proof of concept for just a mechanism. And it has nothing to do with the bigger game. But then once you resolve that, mm-hmm. then it, you're trying to plug it into the bigger mm-hmm. idea. And sometimes it won't fit in that either. Right, you know right. I mean? It's just like shipping the wrong cassette in the wrong hole. And it just doesn't freaking right. work. Um but it's still nice to have, you know, the design experience of making a complete thing is still really yeah. beneficial. But I think that having someone come back to one of your older designs and be like, oh, I've got an idea for this, when you're just like kind of part, part of, I think, maybe the, the no, that wouldn't work is the mental exhaustion with the topic. And some of it might just be, um, you know, you like to think that if you if there was an idea to be had, you would have had it already. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Just goofy. Yeah, because you game designing, there is arrogance to being a game designer, you know, and there's also the feeling that it's your baby. You know, here's somebody coming charging and saying, you know, no, I think you're wrong. I think this can work for the Battle of Britain. And you're going like just right away, you want to take out the knives and you know, the shotgun and defend your baby. Um, but, but you're going to be better off if you just let it go and just, you know, give the baby over to this other person and see what they can do with it. Um, because I think, you know, I've learned as a game designer, at least with my own experience is that whether I'm working with just myself or with another person, the game has a kind of life of its own in a sense. It is your, the game designer is sort of like, uh, I don't know. You're sort of like a midwife. That's probably a dumb analogy, but it's, you know, you, you have to kind of listen to the game, so to speak, and see what it, how it, what am I, I, I'm at a loss for words here, but uh, you know, in architectural design, sometimes the design process is, starts very analytically where you analyze site, you analyze code, you analyze program, which is basically a list of functions that the building or the space has to accommodate, you bring those together and you kind of just, instead of you inserting ideas, the ideas kind of generate from that triangulation. And um, a good designer is one who knows how to organically kind of grow that design rather than try to impose external ideas onto it. So you have to do this kind of give and take where you just kind of have to say, okay, what does this design really want to be? You know, don't insist. Mm -hmm. Because I think the worst thing that can happen, at least for me, is that I'll have a mechanism that I really like. And I started with this mechanism. That actually happened with Skies Above the Reich. We had, until near the very end, we had this mechanism where you drew a card and then you rolled dice. 
Uh, and one of our, and we started with that. And one of our play testers just said, you know, why am I rolling the dice? Why can't I just, cause, cause one of our problems was that the game was just taking too long to play. But we, for the life of us, we couldn't figure out how to shorten it. We had done everything we could and we had just said, okay, we're done. <clears throat> this play tester just goes, you know, why can't you just put the results on the card? I mean, you've got a randomness and a randomness and why do the dice? And now I have to, because the card was telling you how many dice to roll and what number you needed. It was a very clever system, if I do say so myself. Um, but, uh, and I remember, I distinctly remember typing my very polite response to the playtester to explain why he was wrong. And as I was getting halfway through, you know, that little voice in, in my head was going, you should try this. It's going to be shorter. You'll be able to get low ammo into the game this way. And it just... By getting rid of that one mechanism, the mechanism we started with, we had to redo everything, which we did, which just about, which is why I was so fed up by the end of the process. Yeah. But it all came together so nicely. And I thank that. And it was Sam Sheik. I thank him to the very bottom of my socks for piping up like that because he saved us. But that's what you got to do, you you know, and I think the game, he just articulated something that the game was kind of trying to tell us already. But it's hard, but as a designer, it's hard to know what is the good idea and what's the bad idea, which is why working with a team is great. Right. And also like what feedback, because sometimes it's a matter of, you know, play testers might not have, might not favor the same style of game that you're even trying to make. Like mm-hmm. you just don't have the same vision of a, a thing mm-hmm. that your ultimate dream game is the thing that they really don't want to play for whatever reason. It's too long. It's too boring. They don't like the subject matter. They don't like how they don't like conflict like at the table or they want to be solitary or whatever. Um, but I think that some of the aspects of even folks who come from, come to gaming from a very different, you know, style of play, they're things that we all, value right in terms of like what kind of interactions do we want this do we want this sense of the history to come through um you know in in the narrative thrust of the game and i'm very grateful to um that commenter on the on the skies game because our um in the shadows has a diceless system and part of the way jason was able to sell me on it was because i was like I don't know. I really like how it's done in skies. I I think I want to try that. I definitely want to incorporate something like that because it gave this opportunity in that system for a more, it's not just the range of outcomes that would be presented in die rolls and simplifying Mm -hmm. it. There's like a narrative scope to it. Like you could see like, Oh, now we have the disastrous result versus like the, (laughs) the just failed result. Mm -hmm. Like it gave you a wider breadth of, um, failure and that's really what i want <laughs> out of my games that's why i love combat commander I'm just like oh look at look at this failure oh i'm getting i'm getting shot by a sniper and i'm not succeeding oh, perfect <laughs> you know we love it yes <sighs> that is the joys of being a designer you get to uh think about all the worst calamities that you can befall upon a player <laughs> one final question anyway um i we we touched on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about skies and I know for um, infernal machine, like this is also kind of relevant point, but in a lot of these cases, you've got games where they're sort of from the point of view of the 
the loser of, of the conflict, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, the loser of a given war. Is there something that you think is particularly compelling about having a game from, from the loser's perspective? Wow, yeah. You know, I hadn't even thought of that, but I, I see where you're coming from there. Um, boy, I, I certainly don't start with that. I think with Infernal Machine, that that's something that, I mean, years ago I thought doing something about submarines in the American Civil War, some game on that would be kind of cool, but I had no idea what. Um, but um, that's I'm doing that with uh, Ed with Ed Ostermeyer, um, and he <clears throat> he was a fan of um, Enemy Coast Ahead. Um, which is a couple of games I did um, that are kind of, if I do say so myself, a bit tedious, these games. They're, you know, they're detailed, historical, they're solitaire. Um, they focus on a single operation, a mission. Usually you have a squadron that you are tr- handpicking the squadron, you're training it, you're modifying the airplane. Basically, you're designing a machine and then launching it on a mission. So all of your decisions are kind of upfront in the design process. And then you see what your machine does. Then you get outcomes instead of victory conditions. Anyway, um, Ed was uh, a fan of that. And he contacted me through BGG of all places, private message. Um, he gave me a 3000 word p- private message. Um, it's, it, he started well, he's, he, comp- cause he's a good writer. He's, he complimented me on the game. So that's a good start. Um, but then he says, I've got an idea for enemy goes to head. And it was totally, it was on a totally different subject, but we just went, a, started doing a back and forth. He was clear. He really understood enemy coast to head. Um, I mean, those 3000 words was a very detailed, um, pitch for a game, um, which we ultimately didn't do. And, but in our back and forth, we both were really into the American Civil War, and I forgot who came up with it, but we just thought the Hunley, you know, the first successful submarine, well, supposedly successful. But I think what what appeals to me about, um, about Infernal Machine is the actual, is, you know, is the combination, it's really anthro-technological. It's, you put the human organism into this, literally into this machine. And I guess that's also similar in um, Skies Above the Reich, where you're putting these pilots into these machines, lofting them into the air, which is inherently a very dangerous situation, even without 50 caliber, you know, guns firing at you. And here in the 1860s, you've got this, I mean, the, the um, diameter of the submarines was about 42 inches, you know, and you've got these guys and they weren't that small, you know, but the forensics of the, some of the dudes who died in them, they, some of them, one guy was about six foot tall, you know, being inside. And then they were hand cranking. I mean, this is steampunk. They were hand cranking those propellers. And that just, I find that fascinating. Right there, I find it fascinating. And we got into it, and little by little, we learned that both sides had them. So Infernal Machine, you're gonna, you can play Union or Confederate, but the, everybody, you know, historically, the story that gets told is that of the Hunley, which was a Confederate submarine that actually did sink a ship. But, you know, the crew didn't survive the encounter. I mean, I think it's just the ridiculously hopeless situation. And that, and the, and what's also interesting is 
and I think this is probably generally true, the beginnings of something are always very fascinating. So this is during the 1860s, while there was this race to create these submarines, you can see all of the technology that would flourish in the 20th century, with the exception of things like sonar and radar and so on. Um, but, you know, the um, uh, magnetic engine, the, you know, boiler engines, you know, the dive planes, all the, you know, ballast pumps, all these things, where they were, you know, trying to figure out how to make this work in this iron cigar, this iron tube where they're putting these fools into in the interior of these things. I mean, it's just insane. So I think it's the insanity of it that is just very intriguing. That That's fascinating. I, the rich history uh, in warfare of ordering people into small contraptions to die in about 30 minutes is just like unbelievable. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I mean, and it's just like, oh, I guess I'll have to go in there, so I will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And some of them volunteered. Oh. No, and what's crazy is they, you know, they didn't under. I mean, they they knew about oxygen, but they had no way to measure oxygen. So this is one way that they would try to test their machine and the crew is um, they would take the crew in the machine and go down to the bottom of Charleston Harbor and then snuff out the candle because that was their lighting system. Um, and the captain just said, we're going to stay down here until one of you can't take it anymore. That's how they learned how much oxygen they could have. Our thanks to Jerry White. My name is Dan Bullock. Our outro music is provided by San Diego's own This Black Rainbow. And you can find their music on Bandcamp.